This morning for our scripture reading, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 13, uh, beginning at verse 26 through the end of the chapter. As we consider the who of missions, we see specifically in verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is the call to all Christians. And so this passage tells the story of that in a little more detail. Acts 13, beginning at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their, their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Our servant to us this morning is Brother Roy Daniel from South Africa. Um, he is a brother who labors much in the preaching of the word and in the spreading of the word. And so, Brother Roy, if you would come here and I'll pray, and you can speak to us. Father, I pray that you would bless our brother with the presence of your spirit, that you would give him the words to speak, that we may see Christ. Bless him, we pray, through Christ. Amen. Bless Thank you very much. Uh, last night I was a bit sick. This morning I'm feeling way better, so at least you know some of your prayers get answered. Uh, I appreciate that. If you prayed for me, if you didn't pray for me, I still love you. Uh, <coughs> I'm going to uh, preach this morning on uh, the second part of the series, and it's going to be uh, last night I was on the why of missions. Today is going to be, or this morning shall be on the <clears throat> what of missions, what we teach. And then uh, this afternoon, sometime will be the who of mission, who God calls. And I have got a time limit, and I bought a watch specially for you guys. And uh, in Africa, we have uh, churches and places that don't act non-resistant, definitely. And if you preach there, many places, the elders of the church will stand up and drag you from the pulpit if you go over time. And I have been in many such meetings where either I was once or twice dragged off myself, but <laughs> I've seen people dragged off that uh, while they were going, they were trying, they were not being very unresistful. They would be dragged back with the mic in their hands trying to preach to And uh, <laughs> that is something that you might not get all over America, but something I have had exposure to quite a lot. Okay, but I have a time limit and I will keep to it. And if I suddenly in the middle of a sentence stop preaching... It's not because I don't want to say something to you. It's because there's an invisible hand behind my neck that I'm used to, and it will take me off. Okay, what we teach. We can open up the Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. I said to the children this morning, there in Titus chapter 1, we have uh, the fact that uh, we should hold fast the word of truth. Um, <clears throat> and we have other verses in the Bible that say, preach the word. Uh, and that we should study to show ourselves approved. And it's very obvious from the Bible that we should be word-centered and therefore Christ-centered. But yeah, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, with that thought in mind, that when you're in the middle of the jungle uh, with a tribe, or you're speaking to a public school in South Africa or Botswana or some African country, or you're in India or you're in Europe, and you're speaking to a little group of people, that... You should be teaching something that God wants you to teach. And uh, Matthew 7 verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And the reason I just bring up that little verse, which comes shortly after the words, Do not judge, judge not. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Beware of false prophets. Uh, there is obviously things that are said out there in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus, that is 
very bad. And some people, you would call them a false prophet. There are several tests of false prophets in the New Testament, uh, some in the Old Testament, and I know one in South Africa. He fails every single test in the Bible for a false prophet, and I'm still told not to judge him uh, by the members of his so-called church. Uh, but another thing to keep in mind well, I brought that up basically to encourage you, and I'm sure all of you know this, but when you go out teaching, there are things that you should not be teaching, and uh, we should try to teach the truth according to the Word of God in context. However, there is such a thing as a deceived prophet, someone that might even be saved. He's not a false prophet. He's not unsaved. He's not leading people in the way of blindness in a sense, but he has certain aspects of what he teaches that is not right, and that causes damage in the kingdom of God. Now, when I was a young boy, uh, I remember almost 20 years back, I stood up and they allowed me to preach in a conference. I'd just been saved a few months before that, and they allowed me to preach. And there were hundreds of people, and I stood up in that conference, and before I preached, I prayed. I said, God, tell me what to preach. And I came there to Moses in the Bible, who lifted up his hands, and he got tired. And then I saw that Moses was the meekest person on earth. And I spent a few hours praying about this message, and I asked God, what does it mean that Moses is meek? And 20 years back, God seemed to say to me that Moses was like me, because I used to be very thin. And meek means weak. And so when Moses went up the mountain and fasted for 40 days and 40 days, he came back very thin, and so he really struggled to keep his hands up. And so I stood up in front of that church with hundreds of people and, and very well-known preachers who knew their Bibles backwards, and with tears rolling down my face and passion, I told them that Moses was the thinnest person on earth. Now, I would, I would be gracious to myself. That's something we always generally do, more towards ourselves than others. And I would say that I was not a false prophet, but I was a deceived prophet. Numbers 12, verse 3. Well, the man Moses was very meek. You see, you have to understand something. And I'm sure you do. I'm not saying anything here that you don't do. I'm just saying, <laughs> reconfirming, and some people might not know it. The Holy Spirit does not change the Word of God. There might be times you're going through a hard time and you will see in the Scriptures some verse that a little bit out of context is an encouragement to you, and I don't mind that. But there are people out there, and when it says, Thou shalt not murder, they'll say that means that we must all wear blue dresses because the Holy Spirit told me. They will get something out of Scripture that changes the context and the meaning to mean something totally different. Because the Holy Spirit is more important than the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does not change the meaning of Scripture in its context. The Holy Spirit makes it alive to you. It makes it part of your life. There's a lot of ignorance out there. A lot of ignorance. Uh, in America, people seem a little less ignorant. <laughs> except for the people who voted for Donald Trump, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> Um, don't take my take my take my my jokes with a pinch of African salt. But in the Bible, you have the words in John three verse sixteen: "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life." Now I have been in churches in South Africa where I gather the little children together, and and I sat down with them about twenty children. I'd say to them, "Listen." Uh, can I ask you a few Bible questions? 
Can you name any of Adam's children? And they'll say to me, they can't. Uh, I'll tell them the story of Noah, and then I'll ask them, do you know who Peter was? And they'll tell me, literally in front of me, to my face, uh, in an evangelical background-type church where they supposedly preach the gospel, they'll say, well, Peter, perhaps was he, he was on the ark with Noah. And I'm not joking. This is what you meet on the street of people who go to churches out there. There are some denominations in America where the, the preacher, the average preacher, only has two minutes a day that he reads his Bible, let alone the people sitting in the pews and their thousands. And there are tribes out there in South America. One of my friends goes to a tribe there, and, and he, he says that it's impossible to translate John 3 verse 16. Because there's several words in John 3 verse 16 which are untranslatable conceptually to these people. They are the highest being that is out there. There's no spirit that is greater than them. This is not every tribe, by the way. The only concept they have of love is what a man and woman does together uh, at times. I'm not going to, I'm very careful with details. That's the only concept they have, a word they have for love. So if they were to translate for God, so loved the world. There's no way you can even say that verse in their language. And that's why it's so precious to me sometimes to just stand up and say, you know, we're so used to these verses, but how wonderful it is that we can actually say it and even have a basic grasp and understanding of what we are saying. I don't know how many of you can see my beautiful artwork. I'm sure I could sell it in America. <laughs> Modern art. <laughs> Amish modern art. <clears throat> Just missing the beard, you know? Now, now, this is quite an important little picture. I like to go to churches uh, in South Africa and different countries of Africa and the world, and I like to take this little thing out, and I, I give a whole lot of people in the crowd this, and I ask them, I say, listen, in my head, okay, I know what the rest of the picture is. I'm not going to tell you what I know this is, but I'm going to give you two lines of my picture, and I want you to imagine without me helping you what the rest of the picture is. And so we give it out to them, and they're all excited, especially the adults, and they take out their pens, and they draw an amazing picture, and you have a big nose, you know, with uh, holes in it and, and eyes, and some people have a rocket going to the moon, and, and some people, uh, they have the most amazing fish that come out of there, and uh, some things I don't even know what they're drawing, but... It all comes out different. And then I pick up my, my picture and I show them that I drew a house in my head. And the, and the concept that I'm trying to bring across to these people in these churches is that if you give people a little bit of true information and allow them to draw the rest of the picture without teaching them what the rest of the picture is, they're going to come out with whatever they want. And there'll be a little bit of truth. And that's the problem because many missionaries come to different parts of the world and they have this hit-and-run attitude. And I'm not against short-term missionary work if it's done right. But they come to these people and they, they want to get everybody saved so they can tick it off in a box. And, and they basically uh, tell people that Jesus died for you. You're a sinner. You're on your way to hell. And uh, you need to accept Jesus Christ into your life. And, and then people put up their hand. I'm sure you have that in America quite a lot. And what have you given people? You've given them two lines of the Bible. And many of them not even truly saved. 
And then you wonder why when they start drawing the rest of the picture, they start keeping Saturday as a Sabbath and some of them start falling over backwards and some of them have false tongues and some of them go back to their spirit worship at witch doctors and they still say there's a day that they accepted Jesus Christ into their life and they draw the rest of the picture exactly as they want to because they weren't taught who God is, what he's for, what he's against through the Bible stories. Now there are people who can be saved through one verse and they have. But there's other people you can give one verse and they can add to it a whole picture that is totally unbiblical. Now in the Bible, we have a lot of things that happen. One of them would be Paul. He was walking down the road, Saul at the time. And when Saul was walking down the road, uh, <laughs> we read there was a light that shined around him. It's wonderful. Uh, I don't know how many of you have lights that shine around you. But uh, Samuel Morris had something like that. There was a guy in China who seemed to get saved. He had a light shining around his head. I'm not much into those stories. Uh, but uh, yeah, we have Saul in the Bible. And he said, a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? Saul says. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Isn't it wonderful that God in the Bible shone a light from heaven showed Jesus to a person that was totally against him, and he got saved eventually. Do you know what a problem is with many of these portions of Scripture? Is we think sometimes that Satan cannot do something that sounds very similar, and it's not God. In Africa, we have thousands, just in the area I live, thousands of churches that are not churches. They're called Zionist churches. And these churches were witch doctors who, after years of being witch doctors, suddenly Jesus appeared to them. And when this Jesus appeared to them, they had so little knowledge of Jesus that they could not know that this was not Jesus. And so this Jesus uh, says to them, you must stop being a witch doctor. I want you to leave being a witch doctor and you must now become a pastor of a church in their thousands. And not only must you become a pastor of a church, I want you to wear a white dress with, with yellow stripes across it. And I want everybody who comes to your church to wear a white dress with yellow stripes. And so you have these wonderful churches everywhere, thousands of them, and you'll see these people walking down the street with white dresses and yellow stripes. And sometimes the Jesus that appears uh, to these witch doctors who suddenly become uh, pastors, they, they tell them to wear uh, uh, blue shirts with, with white dots all over it. And, and some of them have, have baseball-type uh, bags that they're told by this Jesus to take around to heal people. And it's absolutely amazing seeing these thousands of churches where a Jesus appeared to them which is not the Jesus of Scripture and did not tell them like Paul to follow the true Jesus of Scripture but told them to follow something else. Thousands of churches. We have a denomination called the Zion Church of Christ. In South Africa, three million members of such a church. We have a denomination in South Africa called the International Holiness Pentecostal Church. And this poor guy, three generations back, he thought that he was the Holy Spirit that became man. And so he went around and, and, and he decided that um, <clears throat> he would start a church and he died and 
His son became the Holy Spirit that became man. He has a million followers that get together every second month. And while they have these Jesuses that appear to them and they change so much in their life, they still worship spirits. That's why the Bible says in Matthew 9 verse 17 that we must put new wine in new wineskins. One of the biggest problems in the mission field out there across the world is that people hear a little bit about Jesus in their millions. Sometimes they have a vision of him later because they've heard the name. And they start to add Jesus to what they did before, whether it's spirit worship or Satanism or whatever else that is in their life. They add Jesus to the old wineskins. And that's not true Christianity. There's two big mistakes you can make when you're teaching people short term. One is you might not realize that many people will add Jesus to their religion. And the other is that people will replace religions. They'll stop their God worship. They'll stop everything else. And they'll just start practicing Christianity. There was a lady at the turn of the century, 1900s, in India. And uh, she was quite famous at the time. But anyway, she... Uh, heard something of Christianity, and she stopped all the heathen gods that she used to worship. And for 20 years, she practiced Christianity. No more heathen gods. She would go to a church. She would read something of the Bible. And then after 20 years, she heard from the pulpit that there's such a thing as being born again. Ye must be born again. And suddenly the Holy Spirit worked in life, and she realized I've swapped religions, but I've never followed Jesus. 1 Peter 2 verse 7. You're going to teach on the Bible. This must be true in your life. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. We mentioned that last night. And if he's precious, then you won't change who he is, and you will not change what he says. There are people in South Africa who call themselves Christians who says the Bible is not against gay marriage and many other things. Mark 8 verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. God says, now listen to this, God says that if you are ashamed not of the name of Jesus, You can walk around and tell a million people about the name of Jesus. I follow Jesus. But if you are not ashamed of the name of Jesus, and yet you are ashamed of what he says, then God will be ashamed of you one day when he comes. I've met so many people. They've got a whole lot of error. I'm not talking about little error or mistakes. I was saying Moses is the, the thinnest person on earth. I'm talking about stuff that's dangerous and sinful. And they'll say to me, Roy, we, we gather together around the name of Jesus Christ. You do it like that, I do it like this. And again, it's not little things, it's big things. And I say to them, brother, the name of my wife is Jerusalem Jeanette Daniel. And if I met someone out there with exactly the same name, Jerusalem Jeanette, who happened to be a girl, 
What would you say if I started to kiss a lady that was not my wife? And most of them would say, you're sinful. I said, how can you understand that I'm not allowed to kiss somebody who's got the same name as my wife, who is not my wife, and yet you can have a whole lot of different Jesuses, and it's fine for us to gather together around these Jesuses because they've got the same name. But you're rejecting the person behind the name and what he was for and what he was against and what he stood for in his word. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 2, for I've determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some people take that verse and they say, look, we preach the name of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We don't preach things. We don't preach legalism or against it. We don't preach experiences or against it. We don't preach anything. We just preach Jesus Christ, his name, and that's what we are gathered around. And when people say that to me, I say, but did you read the book? Because that verse is in the middle of a very big book, two books. <laughs> and in those two books in which Jesus, in which Paul says, I'm determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul preaches against a whole lot of stuff that is sinful. And he gives a whole lot of rules to make sure that we don't go over into false spirit experiences. And he, and he talks about all these different things. If you go to his different books like Galatians, you'll see things against legalism. And, and here's Paul, and he's preaching against things, many things. You know, when I meet someone who's into legalism, I will preach against legalism, and I'll tell them against legalism. And then I'll tell them, Come back to Christ. I'll preach against whatever is not Christ to bring people back to Christ. And there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's not Christ. What do we teach? Mark 16 verse 15 says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That should be an emphasis. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20, but we preach Christ crucified. And then in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word. Preach the gospel, preach Christ, and preach the word. And by the way, there's a lot of people who come and say, <coughs> if you, uh, if you, if you uh, don't uh, have amazing leadings from the Holy Spirit, uh, continuously telling you to turn left and right and everywhere, then you're not really uh, uh, spiritual. And I'd like them to turn them to John 6, verse 63. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And I've sat down probably with, over the last 20 years, hundreds of people. Sometimes in the public schools in America, you get to preach to 23,000 people in a week. And I sat down with hundreds of people individually and, and some of them come there and they're in a state because they don't know if they are sinning against God because they have so many ideas of what the Holy Spirit is telling them to do. And they don't know it's God and they don't know if they're obeying God. And I said to them, listen, can I just ask you a simple question? Look at some of these verses. Honor your parents. Are you honoring your parents? And it comes down to no, I'm not. 
If they married, I say, are you, are you laying down your life for your wife? Are you, are you honoring your husband? Are you, are you forgiving those that do things against you? And I go through the list of different things in the Bible, some of the obvious things, and so often they're disobeying all these things. But all they worried about is, how can I be led of the Spirit? And I say to them, listen, brother, I've got nothing against God telling you stuff in the sense that God can call you to some mission field, that God can, 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 can lay it upon your heart to do something nice for someone else. There's a whole lot of stuff that, that God does work through his Holy Spirit. But there's nothing wrong with standing back when you have no discernment what is right and wrong and just get back to the Word of God for a long time in your life. And then it might be safe uh, to discern between what is right and wrong and the leading of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, we read that there's another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. Matthew 28 verse 19 says, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then it says in Matthew 28 verse 20, teaching them, in this verse all of you have heard many, many times, to observe all things, Whatsoever I have commanded you. God said that we should go to the nations, we should preach the gospel, we should baptize them, and that we should teach them what Jesus taught. And, and sometimes I see people not getting very excited about that, and I think it's because they've heard it so often. You know, in South Africa, my grandfather, when he went up to a little poor church where they hadn't had a pastor for a few years, he preached. And the people sitting in that church wept. The elders wept. There were those who repented because of their sins. And then my grandfather, the next weekend, I went with him, and he preached to a, a church that had heard the truth every single weekend with good preaching. And I knew that many of them had things in their life that was wrong. And my grandfather wept from the pulpit. Tears rolled down his face as he begged them, concerning the scriptures and making right with God. And I looked around me and there was just a deadness in the face of the people. And I'll tell you why. Not because they hadn't heard the truth, but because they were drowned in the truth. They heard it so many times that it wasn't precious to them. When you read in the Bible and Jesus says, if you pray in secret, I will reward you openly. I mean, I'm not a charismatic, but think about it. If you go pray in secret, I will reward you openly. If that's true, then why aren't we excited? There are things in the Bible which are so precious that we should, I wouldn't say do a somersault, but we should be excited about them. And why do you see faces? I'm not looking at your faces now. I don't want to do that. But why do we see faces when you read verses that are so precious and we don't get excited about it? It's because we've heard it so many times. It goes in one ear and out the other because it's not, it's not real. We drown in the truth. If you preach, by the way, the commands of Christ, we know that according to Matthew 5 verse 19, someone who does and teaches the commands of Christ, you're considered the greatest in the kingdom of God. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> you don't have to um, have a pray and a mountain falls into the sea. You just have to do what Jesus says and teach others. And Jesus said, you're the greatest in the kingdom of God. Isn't that precious? Doesn't that make you excited? It's not me that said that. <laughs> you know, when you start teaching the commands of Christ, according to the Bible, you start to see who's saved and not. 
He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is not talking about the law of the Old Testament, specifically what Jesus taught. You know, I remember many times I, I said, Jesus, please come into my heart. Jesus Christ, please come into my heart. Because I was afraid of hell. I mentioned that last night. And then there came a day when I came with nothing but my sin, none of my own goodness, not just to miss hell, not just because the other guys at church are getting saved and I didn't want to feel out of it, not because there was some crisis in my life. I came because I had nothing but my sin. And I stood up from there that I'd read through the Bible many times, sometimes 20 chapters a day. I stood up there a new person because of Jesus Christ. And since that time, there's been ups and downs, and I've had to grow in Christ the last uh, 17 years or so. But, but this verse has become true. You see, before, before I was saved, before God changed my life, my heart, I didn't keep the commandments of Christ. I tried to do them. <laughs> but to keep means to cherish, to protect and when God gave me a new heart that loves him, Romans 5 verse 5, the, the love of God shared abroad in my heart through the Holy Spirit in me. When that happened to me, when I received a new heart, Ezekiel 36 verse 26, a new heart also will I give you. Then for the first time in my life, there was someone that I loved. You see, before that, before I got saved, there was a wall between me and God called my sin. And on this side of the wall, I was, and on the other side, God was. And on my side of this wall called sin, I went to church. I read my Bible. I witnessed. I handed out tracts. I organized prayer through the night. I preached. I fasted. But I could never understand why the Bible says you must love God more than your father and mother. Because my mother and father sang me to sleep. My mother and father, my mother was a tooth mouse. I know that's terrifying. <laughs> they were wonderful. I loved them. I could not love God who I'd never met, though I did things for him more than my mother and father that, that, that told me stories at night, <laughs> that gave me spankings. And boy, I loved them for those spankings. <laughs> but there came a day I met with God, and I'll tell you this truth. He that saith, I know him. It doesn't mean you perfectly keep the commands of Christ. It doesn't mean you never fail. It means that there's something in your heart that because you love this person, what he says is important. What he says is important to you. Now, I'd like uh, just to look. <clears throat> okay. At that, one of the things that we read that we should teach, we should teach Christ, we should teach the, preach the gospel, and we should preach uh, the word of God. But when we preach Christ, uh, what we should remember is that Christ is God. He's not just that part of Scripture where he came down, became man, lived the perfect life, did miracles, died, and rose again. He is God. And so when we preach of God, we read in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And, and if you're going to go out there and, and witness to people and you're going to one day be in the mission field, one of the things I encourage you, or you're going to disciple someone in America that grew up in a conservative church, um, I encourage you to be God-centered 
in your teaching. There is a man, a very specific person behind the Word of God. And people need to understand that. I remember growing up in church, in places, at conferences where people would pray through the nights. And when they prayed through the nights at those places, I used to sit under preaching. I was not saved. But as I sat under that preaching, I remember realizing that as these people were preaching, simple, humble men, there were moments as an unsaved person, I realized that behind that word was a God who was great and who was mighty and he was speaking to my heart. And when I realized God's presence confirming the word of God, it did not save me, it did not change my life, but it made me think. And it made the word not just something that someone from the pulpit was speaking. It was something I had to take heed to because one day when I die, I'm going to meet the person who wrote this book. I'm not going to meet the preacher. And we have to teach people the attributes of God as we teach the Bible stories, not just a few thoughts, but through the Bible. And, and the Bible says that the proud, Psalm 86, verse 14, have not set God before them. It tells us that we should declare his glory among the heathen. So if you're going to go out there to the heathen, to those who do not know God, the Bible says we should be teaching them about God, about his glory, about who he is. And as Isaiah 55, 65 verse 1, it said, I am sought of them that ask not for me. Behold, I am found of them that sought me not. I said, this is God's word, by the way. God says these words, behold me, behold me. And a God-centered gospel will lead to more true converts. But not only is the, uh, the attributes of God, and sorry I'm speaking a little fast, we have a time up here, the attributes of God are there for the unsaved, but the attributes of God are there as an encouragement to the saved, to us who are Christians. And I hope you realize this. I don't know what you've been through in life. I'm sure many of you have been through worse than I have. But I really associate with David, who we read in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, he encouraged himself in the Lord. And when you read that verse in isolation, when you as a Christian go through hard times in life, you might think he just encouraged himself in a, the fact that a greater being called God existed. But if you go to the Psalms, You'll see there in the Psalms that the very attributes which should show sinners that they should repent and that one day they, they are playing with a God who is great and mighty and sovereign, that the same attributes that should put fear into the heart of a sinner put hope into the heart of a saint. Because David, when he was in affliction, when he went through hard times, he didn't just look to the fact that God existed, he looked to the fact that God is merciful. He looked at his life, he looked at himself, and he looked away from that to God, and he looked at specific attributes. Right through the Psalms, you'll find this. It's taught that David encouraged himself, not in the fact that God existed, but in who God is. And I don't know how many of you can associate that with that. There's times in my life when I felt like the biggest failure that ever existed. I felt like an emotional wreck. When people that I loved since childhood went off their heads and were put into institutions, and I had to fly down and stay nights on airports and then go and try and help them. 
When my wife was called a criminal to my face by the government officials in South Africa and they wanted to separate us. When many other things happen, I sometimes cried through the nights and sometimes I failed. The months and months of things happening, I failed emotionally. And then I've turned to God. And when I turned to God, He's always been who He said He was in Scripture. Every attribute is true. And He's not like the people around you. I'd like to look quickly, we cannot go in depth, but quickly into some of these attributes of God, just scraping the surface, the goodness of God. Matthew 19, verse 17 says these words, and he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. The goodness of God is very important for unsaved people to understand. It's probably the most important attribute when it comes to teaching the gospel to the unsaved. You wonder why there are books in their millions, sold in their millions by Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, you name it, many different agnostics and atheists. In debates, they will, they will declare a, a war, basically, against the goodness of God. And the answer is, Satan knows that if God is not good, then we don't need the gospel. Because God compares us to himself. And so if God is bad or not so good, then we're not so bad compared to him. And so we don't need the gospel. And that's why Satan attacks the goodness of God right across the world through millions of books and many people. Many people, when they think of the goodness of God, uh, they think it's like my little child, Glenn. He's a blonde. <laughs> and uh, he... He, people walk up to him and say, you're a good little boy. I don't know if anybody's ever told that to your children. Now, what do they mean when they say you're a good little boy? Do they mean that you never, ever are rude to your parents, that you're this perfect little thing that never cries, that makes up your bed? As you get out of bed, your hands are out to make the bed. You're just this perfect kid that never does wrong. No, they mean that on the spectrum of very bad kids who, who, who murder other kids, all the way through to, and swear, uh, kids that are, are reasonably uh, good, that your child would be in the spectrum of children, that part of that spectrum, that are reasonably good <laughs> compared to the other kids. Naturally, when we think of goodness, it is relative goodness. It is goodness compared to others. And Jesus knew this. When this person came to him and said, good master, he knew he was not calling Jesus good because he was God. He was calling Jesus good compared to all the other bad and good people in the world. And God wanted him to compare himself to him. A lot of people ask, how can God send people to hell for one sin? How can I be worthy of hell as an unsaved person who does not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How can I be worthy of hell because I was born a sinner and I came to a point where against my conscience and the word of God, I did a sin. I'm not a baby anymore in the age of innocence. Well, my answer to them is very simple. By asking that question, you have no idea who God is. You have no idea how good he is. You say he's not good 
to send people to hell. It's his goodness is the reason why you would go to hell. Imagine for a moment that C.C. Matthews, his wife, decided to be very un-Christian. And she accused him of lying publicly. And I was the judge, and I had my big hammer. Oh, my big hammer. Have you ever seen a judge? (laughs) I don't know about American judges, but you've got these big hammers. And, and you as a church, totally not non-resistant, brought him, dragged him in here and, and, and said, this guy's lied. And I, I, I took my big, my big hammer and I, I took it and I, and, I, and I said, he's guilty and I want you all to take him outside, get a whole lot of bushes together and I want you to burn him at the stake. <laughs> now, I, if I tried to do that, I'd lose. <laughs> But let me just ask a little question. Why would that not be acceptable? Why would you all think that's stupid? That I as a judge could for one lie send him to be burnt outside. Well, there's two answers. Number one, generally that would not be allowed in a Western society. And number two, someone clever, some American little child might put up his hand and say, but sir, but judge, have you ever told a lie? You see, that's the problem. When we hugely judge someone for what we consider a small thing, like a lie, then we're judging ourselves because we've also told lies. And that's why we find it hard that God could send people to hell for sin. But we don't realize God does not have that problem. Not only has God never done evil, only done good, but he is the goodness that we could never understand. And compared to him, It is perfectly righteous for him to send us to hell for eternity outside of Jesus Christ for even one law that is broken. But not only is this goodness a great motivation to sinners to repent. I went to a church last year, and in that church... uh, the pastor had run away with a woman, a young woman, and the church was a mess. They sent me an email. They said, Roy, we are a mess. That's the introduction. Uh, if you'd like to come preach, please pray about it a lot because it might go wrong. Uh, so I did a little prayer and I said, I'm coming. Uh, the next thing, they started fighting about me, and I mean fighting. They didn't know me, but they, they fought. They found things that never existed. They talked about my wife. They, they got me out of the pulpit into a little hall. And there I could preach eventually. And I came down there to this little messed up church. That morning before I went, I failed. I was very tired. I was sick. And that's not an excuse, but I got angry. And I got cross with someone and I, I slammed the door. <laughs> and I honestly, as I traveled five hours to get to that church the next day, I did not feel like I had the right to preach. I begged God for mercy and I stood up and preached a little sermon on the goodness of God. For about two years, many people in that church were not just depressed, they were zombies. They were walking about. One person in that church could not pray for three months. Three months could not pray. One lady had been forced to marry hated her husband for 15 years. And yeah, this failure preacher comes. And I told them and reminded them of the goodness of God 
and I felt tired and I felt a failure. And God just broke the chains and not one drop of glory could go to me because I was a failure. People who could not pray for months could pray again. Marriage is reconciled because of one thing, the goodness of God. They started to believe in the goodness of God again. Do you understand what David did when he encouraged himself in the Lord? Oh, brother. I just suddenly realized my stopwatch stopped. I'm, I'm going to mention one thing and then I'm going to stop because I thought I had plenty of time. God owns everything. And this is the last point. I won't go into his holiness or anything else because I see my time was out. Probably. When God created everything, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. We read in Psalm 24 verse 1, this means God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns us twice. He owns us because he created us. The moment he spoke and we were created, everything in creation, including us, it means he owns us. That's what the Bible teaches. But he also owns us by right of redemption. We read this in 2 Corinthians. And some people say, Roy, or any preacher, I've seen this a lot on Facebook, Americans, South Africans, all over the world, people ask, how can God be good if he allows little babies to drown in, 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 in swimming pools and children to be born with AIDS and, and, and people to kill people and sicknesses and all these different things? And of course, we've got the context of, of suffering that we can tell them where suffering came from and why it came and who, whose fault it was. But one thing I like to tell them is, you don't know who God is. <laughs> and I use one little illustration, and I'll end with this today for time's sake. If there was an ant walking across, yeah, okay, an ant, <laughs> And it was walking very slowly. Okay, I won't tell you about the whole walk, but that'll take even more time. But this little ant was walking here, and I went up to this ant, and I, I pushed down on the ant, and I killed it. How many of you would, would stand up and, and shout? I know you don't do that anyway, but <laughs> you are a murderer <laughs> because you killed that ant. Well, there are some tree-hugging New Age people out there that might do that, actually. <laughs> but uh, generally, people are sane enough not to do that. The reason why we don't, even atheists don't accuse ant killers as murderers, is because they understand that there are higher and lower beings. That I am a higher being than an ant. That if I kill an ant, I'm not a murderer. But if I kill something that's equal to me, I am a murderer. Unless I'm a judge. In some cases. Now, we are a, a lot higher being than an ant. We are created in the image of God, but infinitely above, infinitely above. The difference between us and an ant is the difference between us and the God who created heaven and earth. 
And we cannot judge him as if he were a man. He can do with his creation as he chooses. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He can do with you as he wants. He could have sent Adam to hell the moment that he sinned. And yet, instead of doing that, while we were at his mercy, he gave his son to die. I drowned nearly three times in my life. Each time I was unsaved. If I died there, I would have opened my eyes in the flames of hell. I would not be here today. I would be screaming for a drop of water. I would be longing for a moment out of that place. God allowed me to live. And I'm forever grateful for that day that I got saved. I'm going to stop preaching now. Again, I don't know where my time went. But let us pray. Father, I just want to thank you that, that we could have preaching tonight. And I don't know what happened with my watch uh, stopping. I don't even know how much time I left or didn't have left. But I know this, dear Father. that The word of God is a two-edged sword. Mighty through God to the rending asunder, even of soul and spirit. And I just ask you, dear Father, that you would help us to to realize how it's not, it's not just a story. It's not just a David did it and we can't. And it's, it, it's specifically true that when we go through hard times in life, just like David encouraged himself in the Lord deeply through the working of the Word and the Holy Spirit, we can be lifted up through the attributes of God, through who you are and how we can access it through Jesus Christ. But then also, dear Father, in evangelism, in witnessing, in teaching, whether it be in the mission field far out there or wherever it is, help us to remember to preach the commands of Christ, to be excited about it because it's real and it's true and it's what you want and we love Jesus, the man beyond the word. And help us also to do it from a God-centered perspective, showing people the different attributes of God, whether it be the fact that you are the creator, that you're almighty, that you are the possessor of heaven and earth, that you are sovereign, that you are everywhere, that you see all things, that you know all things, that you are justice, that you are equal, that you are faithful, that you are righteousness, that you are self-sufficient and all-sufficient. Father, that you are eternal, infinite, holy in love and mercy. And help us to grasp and understand these truths of who you are, that behind the name of Jesus there's a person who is very, very specific in who he is and very real. And help us to apply this to our life and to our ministry in discipleship, in evangelism, in missions. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.